Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, we thank you for this Shabbat, for this time that you've given us to gather together as Mishpacha's family, to worship before you, to receive from you and interact with you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard, your word received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose, and that you will breathe new life in your Ruach HaKodesh in us today preparing us to leave this place and to impact the world around us for the good of your kingdom and your holy name. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen. So this week we, be, we begin reading Vayichra, uh, or the book of Leviticus, with Parsha Vayichra, which is the first Parsha, or the first five chapters in this case, of the book of Leviticus. And just as a kind of preamble to the message, if you would, um, I have a little video clip I wanted to play for you. Um, this is often what most people think and the body of Messiah about the book, book of Leviticus, or rather what they, they interpret it sounding like, all right? So sit back and enjoy this for a moment. We have the holy hand grenade. Yes, of course, the holy hand grenade of Antioch. It is one of the sacred relics Brother Maynard carries with him. Brother Maynard, bring up the holy hand grenade. Consult the Book of Armaments. Armaments, chapter 2, verses 9 to 21. And Saint Attila raised the hand grenade up on high, saying, O Lord, bless this thy hand grenade, that with it thou mayst blow thine enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. And the Lord did grin, and the people did feast upon the lambs and sloths and carp and anchovies, and orangutans, and breakfast cereals, and fruit bats, and large... Give a bit, brother. And the Lord spake, saying, First shalt thou take out the holy pin, then shalt thou count to three, no more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. Five is right out. Once the number three, being the third number, be reached, then lobbest thou thy holy hand grenade of Antioch towards thy foe, who, being not in my sight, shall snuff it. Amen. 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 Right. One, two, five. Three, sir. Three. So, 
That was partially because I can, uh, and partially because, in all honesty, most believers looking at the book of Leviticus, that's exactly how they read it. Uh, I can tell you that I am personally one who thinks that uh, getting through Leviticus can be difficult at times because it can get bogged down and boring and, and what have you. Uh, it, can be re- it can become repetitive as we look at, at all the numbers and the sacrifices and everything that must go on and how it must be done. But it's also vitally important as believers that we recognize that Leviticus is not only just a book in the Bible, but Leviticus is as much the Word of God as any of the rest of the Bible is. And that there are vital lessons that we must learn as believers in the book of Leviticus. And so as a congregation, as we move through uh, this period of time in the Torah cycle, moving through Vayichra or the book of Leviticus, I want to encourage you to take the time throughout the week to dig into the book of Leviticus. If you have one of the, the calendars that we made this year, have one of those, it breaks the reading down based off of the traditional aliyot uh, that would be read in the services, in the Torah service on Shabbat. So it, 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 there's seven aliyot, so we break it down where you would read a aliyah or a, uh, a portion of the Parsha each day of the week, beginning with Sunday and rolling through uh, Shabbat, through Saturday. So you don't even have to worry about, okay, I'm going to sit down on this day and read through the entire Parsha. And, you know, there, there are a few Parshot in, in Leviticus that are six, seven chapters long, and In Leviticus, that's a lot, in all honesty. Um, But if you take the time to sit down and read it and break it up and really dig into it, I promise you're going to learn some really valuable things, some really valuable lessons out of this book. And with that said, I want to actually dive into the Parsha today uh, and and talk to you about something that the Lord uh, has really put on my heart to speak about today as we look at Parsha Vayichra. So just for setup, we'll go to Leviticus chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Leviticus chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now I called to Moses and spoke to him out of the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to Bnei Israel and tell them, When any one of you brings an offering to Adonai, you may present your offering of livestock from the herd or, the flock, or from the flock. So we're going to pause there for a second. A couple of really interesting things to, to recognize here is the word translated in most translations as man or any one of you, any person who wants to bring an offering here is not the Hebrew word ish, which means singular man, but instead the word adam, which also means man, but directs us back to Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, through whom sin entered the world in the first place. Uh, and so it's really interesting the, that, that throughout the Torah, more often than not, we see the word ish in reference to man, but in certain scenarios, specifically right here in Leviticus 1, we see the word Adam brought up. And so there's this connection, this reminder back to that necessity uh, of a, a cleansing, of a, a sacrificial uh, cleansing that must be a part of our lives. Uh, it's also said about this that uh, the, the verse does not say a man of you who shall bring near an offering, but a man of you who shall bring near of you an offering is a, uh, another way in which that phrase there, that sentence can be translated. The offering must come from within the person. It is the animal within man that must be brought near and elevated by the divine fire upon the altar. In other words, you can bring something to the, the, the altar. You can bring something to the tabernacle, the temple as an offering, but is it really something that you're bringing from within? Is it really something you're bringing from the heart? Or is it just something you're bringing out of rote practice because you think you should? 
And as we move to the prophets, we realize that the Lord made accusations against Israel that I never wanted your sacrifices or your offerings. Not that he didn't want Israel to make sacrifices and offerings, but he didn't want them in the way that we had begun to bring them. And I believe in the body of Messiah, we, e- we are equally guilty of the same attitude in the way we approach our Heavenly Father in worship when we gather together in services. Uh, in that more often than not, we come more because we believe we're supposed to, or we come because it's uh, viewed as almost a country club kind of mentality that we must be seen for this purpose or that purpose or this perk in my regular life or that perk. But are we really approaching our Heavenly Father in worship with the right heart? Are we bringing a sacrifice or an offering of our lives that is from the right place? Or are we just here because we feel like we are supposed to? Uh, and more particularly as we move forward in this Parsha, I want to look at a very specific concept or idea spoken of in this Parsha. So if you go to chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. So uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 2 is dealing with the grain offering, particularly uh, of the, the unleavened bread that would be brought uh, to the, the tabernacle as an offering. There are five different types of offerings or sacrifices that are mentioned in this Parsha, and one of those is that grain offering. Verse 11 says, Every grain offering which you present to Adonai should be made without chametz or without leavening. For you are not to burn up as smoke any chametz, nor any honey as a sacrifice made by fire to Adonai. As a gift of first fruits, you may but they are not to ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Also, you are to season with salt every sacrifice of your grain offering. You are never to allow the salt of the covenant of God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all the sacrifices, you must offer salt. Now, I want to hone in on this for just a second. We're going to back up to the beginning of verse 13. It says, also you are to season with salt every sacrifice of your grain offering. And then the end of the, or the continuing on there, it says, you are never to allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. In that last little sentence, with all your sacrifices, you must offer salt. Now I want you to grasp this. This isn't saying that you are to put salt upon your grain offerings only. But the Lord says very specifically, every sacrifice, every offering that is brought before the Lord to the, the tabernacle or, or in the future, the temple, must be offered with salt. Now this seems really odd and, and really out of place and kind of reminds us of the, the video that was just played from Monty Python, right? That idea of the Lord's just got these random arbitrary commands that are just so, you know, Thou shalt as count to three, thou shalt not count to four, thou shalt not stop at two, unless thou then continue on to three, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that it, it feels overwhelming and overbearing at times. But then we come to this and we recognize that there's got to be something more that's being said here. And see, as believers, and, and I don't know about you guys, but I personally believe that God's not done with any of his word. From Genesis to Revelation is the word of God, right? God spoke the Torah, and, and the way I like to often describe it as this way the the Torah the first five books of the Bible are the word of God everything else from Joshua on is God's commentary on God's word I believe it's all the word of God I believe it is all divinely inspired and that the spirit of God spoke through the authors of the Bible to speak forth his message to speak forth the word of of the Lord that would ultimately bring his creation not just Jews not just Gentiles but all of his creation back to him through the blood atonement that only he could truly offer. 
And if that's true, if every word from Genesis to Revelation is the word of God, then that means that Leviticus is a part of that. And that there's got to be something here. And he's not just wasting words for the sake of wasting words. And right now, anybody been to the temple recently? It's been about 2,000 years, give or take, since we were able to go to the temple, right? Even longer than that since the tabernacle stood in Shiloh. When we look at the word of God, we recognize that the book of Leviticus deals heavily with the tabernacle and the temple, with the priestly service and, and the holiness that goes into that. But it's not standing anymore. How do we interact with these words? How do we learn to live this out? Do we just write it off completely? Or do we find ways to interact with it so as not to forsake the word of God, even though the reality is, is the temple no longer stands because of our sins, not because of God's decision. I want you to understand, God didn't allow for the temple to be destroyed the first time or the second time because he wanted it to be. He allowed it to be destroyed because of our sins, because of our mistakes, because of our errors. And so here as we look at this, he says not to bring offerings of any sort. Now it's mentioned in dealing with the grain, but he specifically says none of your offerings, none of your sacrifices should be brought for staking the salt of the covenant. And the language here is really interesting. The, the, the actual Hebrew in this passage, the, the Hebrew that's used in, in, in this verse uh, to connote the, the, the salt of the covenant is melach brit. Marach, uh, melach brit. Melach brit. Kind of sounds like malach, the king, right, or the, uh, that we see there, but it's not. It's spelled a little different. It's malach, uh, melach brit, or the, 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 the salt of the covenant. But then there's another passage in the Torah that we read that deals with similar wording, but it's actually flipped around. So we're going to go to, to Numbers chapter 18, beginning with verse 19. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19 says, Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings which B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, present to Adonai, I have given to you, your sons and your daughters, with you a permanent share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before Adonai for you and your offspring. This is dealing with the priesthood, the Aaronic order of the priesthood, and their being set in charge of the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. It's talking about how in this passage in Numbers that they do not have an inheritance in the land of Israel, uh, in the land of Canaan. When they go into Canaan, they do not have an inheritance in the land of Israel, but instead their inheritance is the Lord himself. Their inheritance is the priesthood, and they partake the way that they are provided for is through the sacrificial system and the foods that are brought through the sacrificial system is how the Lord provides for them to eat, that they get to take share and part in the sacrifices and in eating those uh, offerings and sacrifices that are brought. And so he specifically says that they were brought into an everlasting covenant through the covenant of salt. And the word flips around and in the Hebrew it's berit melach. So in Leviticus uh, 2, it says melach berit. And in, Levit in Numbers 18, it says uh, berit melach, or the covenant of salt. There's another place that we see the same phrase, uh, melech, uh, or, uh, berit melach. Uh, there's another place that we see this exact same phrase arise. And that's in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 13, beginning with verse 5. It says, do you know that I, God of Israel, has given kingship over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons by a covenant of salt, berit melach. And, and I encourage you, go back and read the rest of that chapter because it's one of the most powerful, one of the most moving speeches from anyone in the, the Tanakh leading Israel back to Adonai. Uh, this is the, the coming from King Abijah or Abiyah in Hebrew, who was one of the, the, the delineated kings from David over the, the 
southern kingdom or the kingdom of Judah, and he's dealing with the nation of Israel willingly and, and, and uh, by their own choice, serving uh, false gods and setting up idols and so on and so forth. And he's dealing with the, the, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, coming and attacking. And he's trying to, much as many of the prophets do throughout the Tanakh, he's trying to call Israel back to Adonai through a faithful heart. And so he says that, do you not understand that the kingship authority of the people of Israel, not just the southern kingdom, not just the kingdom of Judah, but of all Israel was given by Adonai in a covenant of salt to David and his descendants forever. And so we see this idea pop up several times of this idea of the salt of the covenant or the covenant of salt uh, as we read it here in, uh, in the, the, the Tanakh that comes up several times throughout the scriptures. And, and we wonder, well, how, what in the world does salt have to do with covenant? First of all, I don't even like salt. Like, I don't put salt on anything. If it's not already there, I'm not going to add it to it. I don't like the taste of it. What in the world does it have to do with any of this? How does salt have a connection with covenant? How can it have anything to do with any of this in the first place? As we look at this, I want to draw out and, and point out the fact that we see uh, uh, first the salt of the covenant mentioned for the nation of Israel, that the offerings brought by the heart, from the heart of the nation of Israel, must have the salt of the covenant on it. And then the two other places we see that one in Numbers deals with the priesthood, and instead of it being the salt of the covenant as mentioned with Israel, it's saying, saying the covenant of salt. And then we go to the second, which is in Second Chronicles 13, where it's the same thing, speaking of the kingship of Melech David and his lineage, and it talks about it being the covenant of salt again. And so as we look at this, we recognize that there's this idea that we, the people of God, are to bring offerings which are seasoned with salt. And then that same salt of covenant is inversely given in a little bit of a different way to the priesthood and to the kingship of David, to the priesthood of Aaron and the kingship of David, in that they are made in a covenant with Adonai through the covenant of salt. And it's really interesting to see this, that it's those two very specific people groups, the descendants of Aaron and the descendants of David. Because as we said in our Torah service today, we recognize from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, that Yeshua is both our high priest in the order of Melchizedek and he's our king in the lineage of David. Our uh, Melech Mashiach, our king Messiah for all eternity. And so we, we see this connection between the Numbers 18 passage, Second Chronicles 13 passage, referencing the covenant of salt upon the priest and upon the kings of Israel. And we recognize that it is in itself foreshadowing of Messiah Yeshua, who is both our king and our priest. Uh, and it's really interesting as we look at this, that when dealing with the covenant made by God to the priests and the kings, it's a covenant of salt. And when dealing with us entering into the covenant, we take part in the sacrificial system, we're taking part in that covenant. When we enter into the covenant as the people of God, that we bring salt of the covenant. Notice the inverse. When it's God's action, it's the covenant of salt. When it's our action, it's the salt of the covenant. Back in, in history, we recognize that treaties and covenants between two parties were often sealed with salt. 
So this phrase, salt of the covenant or covenant salt, starts to kind of come together. We start to see this picture beginning to, to open up. As a matter of fact, there are uh, historical references to people carrying, because salt had value, right? Salt was good for, for preservation, uh, you know, keeping kosher. We would, when we, we would kill our meat, we would pack it with salt to draw the extra blood out because we weren't, we aren't supposed to eat blood. So we'd pack it with salt to draw the extra blood out. So there's this preservation method. There's this, this connection to the this holiness that goes into costuring the meats and things that we're eating. There's this connection to the covenant there. And what's really interesting as we look at this, as we kind of bring this all together, is that salt had a very high value to it. As a matter of fact, in old uh, uh, trade routes and such, people would actually carry salt packs on their belt, like change purses and such. And as they were traveling, uh, they would often pay for whatever commodities it is they're buying and trade with salt. Or as they make covenants and agreements and treaties with, with each other, they would do so with salt. And there's, there's reference to there being uh, these, these agreements that were made in which, you know, say, Robbie and I, we're, we're coming to agreement on something and we finally nailed down the terms of this agreement and we wanted to make uh, a statement that this is a permanent agreement between us. I would take a little salt out of my pack. I would put it in my hand. He would take a little salt out of his pack. He'd put it in his hand. We would exchange salt. That salt would then be added to our own individual packs. Now, once you, you can imagine salt, fine grains, it's small, it's, it's intricate. As it starts to mix together, it's all going to get tumbled around. And so the idea is, may this agreement that we've now entered into, this covenant, if you would, that we've now entered into, be harder to tear apart and to break than it would be to pick our own individual original grains of salt out of the other guy's pack. Kind of reminds us of the Jewish wedding in, in the modern day in which we break the glass at the end of the ceremony, the groom breaks the glass and kind of the tradition behind it is may it be harder for the marriage to be broken apart than it would be to put the pieces of glass back together again. And so as we look at this, this narration, this uh, connection to this, this salt of the covenant, we see that there's some greater imagery here. As a matter of fact, Midrash explains that when God originally divided the upper waters and the lower waters on the second day of creation, the lower waters complained that they were doomed and, uh, to the lower spheres farther from God and the heavens. God therefore made a covenant with them that they would be offered in the temple in the form of sea salt, which would be placed on every sacrifice as well as on the water libations offered at Sukkot. An interesting explanation to this was offered by Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. Uh, the lower waters might have felt that they were being re uh, relegated to a much lower station in the universe, to the physical realm, much more distant from God. In response, God agreed that water would regularly be offered in the, te on the temple altar, but God didn't take water itself. And why could he not take in the water? Because it would put out the fire, right? Water kills fire on the altar. There needs to be fire going. So he says, God didn't take the water itself, but it's salt. It's most physical element, which stays behind even when water does evaporate and ascend to heaven. Anybody ever sweat? The South, we can be honest, we all sweat, right? Our shirts get drenched. Finally, they dry out and we got those nice salt sediment rings on our clothing. You kind of get the picture here. Uh, it says, uh, it's most physical element, which... Uh, uh, stays behind even when water does evaporate and ascend to heaven. The message to the lower waters and to us as the people of God is that being physical does not have to make us distant from God. We can take our very physicality and use it to serve God and it will lift us up to greater heights. 
as we look at this, we start to wonder, how does this connect to our lives in the 21st century as followers of Messiah? This random discussion in Leviticus chapter 2 about salt being added to the sacrifices and it being a sign of the covenant and us willingly entering into that covenant. How could this possibly mean anything at all to us as believers in Messiah Yeshua in the 21st century? If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. Yeshua says in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how shall it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lampstand so it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And it continues on uh, through Matthew 5 to delve into a deeper explanation of the commandments of the Torah and how we as believers can interact with that um, in, in the body of Messiah. But we recognize that he calls us the salt of the earth and he says that if salt should lose its flavor, it becomes useless. And, and in other words, he's posing a question to us. Are you going to be part of the sacrifice? Are you going to be part of the offering that your life should be to the Lord? just as the salt was a part of every sacrifice made in the tabernacle in the temple, or are you going to let yourself become useless in the kingdom of God? And, and in all honesty, if we are honest with ourselves and admit it, uh, there are plenty of times in our life as believers in which we allow ourselves to be useless rather than the salt of the earth. There are plenty of times where we pass on opportunities to be used by God. There are plenty of times where we hold ourselves back from giving the fullness of everything that we are to the Lord. In, in Luke chapter 14, beginning with 25, we see a similar concept rise up. And this time it's dealing more with the persecution that we as believers are going to, uh, to partake in. And over the last 2,000 years, persecution that many believers have partaken in. When Yeshua spoke these words, it wasn't anything new. Jews living under Roman authority were well aware of the fact that the Roman Empire was rather brutal to anybody that did not fall in line with their uh, opinion and toe the party line. And the Jews of Israel were pretty well used to having to deal with that. And we recognize that as we move through history that we start to see that the, the Talmudim, the disciples of Yeshua, died in some of the most horrendous deaths, many of them because of their faith and Messiah, which contradicted the Roman Empire. Uh, verse 25 of Luke 14 says, Now great crowds were traveling with Yeshua, and he turned and said to them, Look, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. First and foremost, we just talked about Matthew 5, where Yeshua says, If you've even hated somebody in your heart, you've already committed murder in your heart. So clearly God's not saying in this passage that he expects us to hate our family. It's got to be something deeper being said here. And what he's saying is we've got to be willing to walk away from everything. We've got to be willing to leave everything behind to be a Talmud, to be a disciple of Yeshua. Going on verse 28, for which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and figure out the cost to see if he has enough to finish it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and isn't able to finish everything, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. 
Or what king goes to make war against another king and won't first sit down to consider whether he's able to with 10,000 to confront the one coming against him with 20,000? If not, why the other is still far away? He sends an ambassador and asks for peace. So in the same way, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Therefore, salt is good. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how shall it be made salty again? It is not suitable for the soil or for manure heap. It is thrown out. The one who hears, uh, who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we see this connection to salt again. And we recognize that the Lord is trying to hammer something home here. That in order for us, I believe in all honesty, in order for us to truly serve the Lord, our lives have to become a living sacrifice. And the Torah says in Leviticus 2 that there must be salt offered with that, that, that sacrifice. With every sacrifice, with every offering brought before the Lord, there must be salt with that sacrifice. When the Israelites brought their offering and they offered salt to go with it, it was a sacrifice in and of itself to give of that because it was used for the preservation of their food. It was used to, uh, uh, in agreements, it was used for monetary purposes and various reasons throughout history, etc., etc. It was a physical sacrifice. It wasn't just that they sacrificed their lamb or their oxen. It wasn't just that they sacrificed the grain that they harvest, but there was also an extra something on top of that with the salt that went into it. And as people who live on the Gulf Coast where it is 3,000% humidity year-round and it's only a mild exaggeration, we understand sweat and we understand salt that goes with it. Do you know that 0.15% of your entire body is salt? When I was in Africa last year with JVMI uh, on the medical outreach, it was funny how often the nurses would run around everyone and go, do you have your, your uh, 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 hydration salts today? Do you have your hydration salts today? We can't actually absorb water to live without salt being in our bodies, right? So there is, in, in the reality of us living our lives for the Lord, there is a literal example of what we read in Leviticus 2 of the salt of the covenant being placed upon the offering when we offer our lives as a sacrifice before the Lord. So when we read in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says, I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This isn't just some random statement being made, but Paul is calling us, he recognizes, I believe wholeheartedly that Paul recognized in the very near future the temple was no longer going to be standing. And once the temple was gone, we could no longer make physical sacrifices at the temple. And once we can no longer make physical sacrifices at the temple, we need to recognize that the sacrifice that God is really looking for is the sacrifice of our own hearts. That's the message we read throughout the prophets over and over and over again. When God says, I never wanted your sacrifices, he's not saying I didn't want them. He's saying I wanted them to come from the right place. And the same is true for our lives today. Where is your sacrifice coming from? Is there a sacrifice being made in your life? Do you lay your life down for the Lord on a daily basis? And if so, do you allow for the salt of the covenant, the, the actual reality of suffering that goes with that sacrifice to be a part of your sacrifice, to be a part of your life as you live out your life for the Lord? For far too many of us in the body of Messiah, we want the easy route. What's the easiest possible thing I can do to be a believer? Okay, I can say the repeat after me, Lord's Prayer, or not the Lord's Prayer, what do they call it? The, the, um, 
sinner's prayer, thank you. The repeat after me sinner's prayer and then I'm good. I'll go get wet and, and go on with my life and everything will be okay. And for most believers, honestly, today in the 21st century, that's exactly how we live our lives. I said a prayer at some time and I'm good from then out and nothing else to worry about. But you know, the word of God from Genesis to Revelation says that there is a much greater sacrifice that goes into being a child of God. That we have to be willing to set our lives down and pick up the cross of Yeshua and follow him in order to be his disciple. Yeshua offered his life and sweat and blood poured out of him for you and I to be renewed and restored into the image and likeness of our creator. And he has called us to pick up that same cross, to take on that same sacrifice as we walk with him, allowing him to lead us in everything that we do. And far too often in our lives, we are way too quick to say, <laughs> look, God, I was with you till, till that. That's, whatever, that's more than, I don't, I don't have that in me. I don't want to do that. Um, give that to the next guy. I'll go do something. I'll go do something else. Whatever else, you, but, but that's not me. And God's saying, no, every aspect of your life must be placed on the altar. You must be willing to give everything that you are for me because I gave everything for you. See, the sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle and the temple, these were man making sacrifice for atonement for man. It's never going to get us anywhere, ever. As a matter of fact, even the Yom Kippur sacrifice, all it did was push our sins forward to the next year into the next year, into the next year. And it was a snowball effect on the other end. But the blood atonement of Messiah once and for all wiped out our sins. When we cry out upon the name of Yeshua, when we cry out for his salvation, every mistake we have ever made in our life up to that point is gone. That doesn't mean we don't still have consequences here on earth, but the eternal ramifications are gone. And our heavenly father wraps his loving embrace around us. But when that happens, we must from then on live a life of a living sacrifice, making sure that the salt of the covenant is a part of the covenant that we have become a part of. Making sure that the salt of the covenant is in everything that we do, that we put everything that we have, not just bringing an offering of our voice, but bringing an offering of our voice that comes from our heart. Not just bringing an offering in which the Lord can speak through us to others, but one in which he does so through our heart. Not just lifting our hands because everyone else around us is lifting their hands, but doing so because it's from our heart. Not just speaking the word of truth because it's the word of truth, but doing so because it's from our heart. See, in Leviticus, it makes it very clear that the salt of the covenant is something we bring to the picture but the covenant of salt is something he brings. And he brought that not just for the Aaronic order and the Davidic, priest, uh, the Davidic kingship, but he brought it through Messiah Yeshua so that we could all be restored and renewed because now we are all sons and daughters. By the blood atonement of Messiah, we are all sons and daughters of the king. And so we bring the salt of the covenant. He brings the covenant of the salt so that we can be restored and renewed and our lives can be a living sacrifice. And now that salt that we put on the offering, that salt that we put on that living sacrifice that comes from our lives that Romans 12 talks about, that salt isn't just our salt, but it's our salt blended with the covenant salt of Adonai. 
And just as I said before, when you would take a little salt out of your pouch and give it to your buddy and he'd take a little salt and give it to you and it'd go in, it would all mix together and you couldn't pick out your original grain of salt again. And the same should be true for our lives walking in faith with Messiah Yeshua. The world should not be able to see where the line divides between us and God. They should only be able to see God in us. And that is where our lives become a living sacrifice seasoned by the salt of the covenant. The covenant of the blood of the Lamb of Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Avarachmim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, we thank you for your holy Shabbat. We thank you for this time that you've set aside uh, as a holy day for us to rest as you rested from your work of creation. As a day that you have set aside for us to rest, not just laying aside our work and clocking out for the weekend, but Father, that we can rest in your very presence and experience you in a new way. That we can breathe in the peace, the shalom of your presence. Father, I thank you that you have given us this time to gather together in service that we can worship as one voice, as one heart, united, echad, one in you. Father, that we can gather together to receive and to hear from you and to be touched by you, changed by you, and prepared to go forth in the world around us to make disciples of all nations. Father, I thank you that you love us so much that you gave your only begotten Son as a sacrifice for our sins that we could be restored into your presence for all eternity. Father, you've done far more for us than we could ever, ever imagine. Far more than we could ever thank you for. But Lord, we give you our thanks. We give you our gratitude. We give you our love. And we ask you, Lord, to continue to wrap us in your embrace day in and day out that we may tangibly experience the presence of God in our lives as we become every day more and more and more of a living sacrifice before you. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen.